be seated. I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. This, at least in this series, will be our final time considering these verses. Peter's second letter to the churches in Asia Minor. You know, it's been an absolute joy to walk through this passage, these passages, over almost the past year. And Lord willing, we'll wrap up this series by considering one more book, the book of Jude, which thematically ties in well to First and Second Peter. If I could summarize our passage, or this series, in a sentence, which would be hard to do, um, and I'm going to cheat and put as many commas in as I can, I would say this. This series, the study of First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude, has been about trusting in Jesus Christ for our hope, for living faithfully during trying times, and our source of encouragement as we prepare for His imminent return. Trusting in Jesus Christ for the times, trials, and difficulties we currently face, and trusting in Jesus Christ as we look for what is to come. This only scratches the surface of all of this teaching, and I admit that, but it does give us a big picture. And this is a good reminder now as we get to these final verses because Peter brings up that message, that um, purpose yet again. He concludes this letter as a loving mentor who understands all too well the importance of keeping the faith during trying times. And so with this, I invite you to follow along with me this morning as I read for us Peter's last words to these churches. I will begin in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, and I will read through the end of the chapter. You can also find it on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with an outline of this morning's passage. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spots or blemish and at peace. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. Now there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And as he has promised us that the water will fall upon the earth and provide nourishment for the plants and all that need it for life, so too will his word go forth today and provide for each of us that which we need. Would you please go with me now to the Lord and ask that he provide that which we need today, which is him. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is today to know that our greatest need is met through you. For our greatest need is you. We need help, for our sin is great. We have fallen. We continue to fall. We struggle in many ways. And yet you tell us, look to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, would you be with us this morning, opening our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we might hear and see and believe 
Lord, I pray for each person here, all those joining us online, that we might be drawn closer to you this day through the reading and hearing of your word. I pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Before I dig into our passage for this morning, um, I want to do something, and, and this is this may take you a little bit back, but um, there's a verse, there's a very important verse in Second Peter chapter 3. I preached on it um, last Sunday, or maybe two Sundays ago, my, my mind's escaping me, but I want to dig in real quick. I've, I've had some encouragement to, to look at it with us, because there's a heresy attached to it if you're not careful. Look up if you've got your Bibles uh, just to verse 9, right before this. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a very, very important phrase. And one of our tasks as we come to God's word is to be equipped with truth so that we know what is true and so that we can stand against what is false. Peter has preached about this multiple times in First and Second Peter. And really, that's one of the, the primary tools we have in defending against false teaching, difficulties, trials, persecutions, is knowing the truth. And there's a group of people um, that, that, that do some weird things to this verse. Uh, um, many names, but you can call them universalists. And they have a lot of views, but one is everybody really is going to get saved eventually. And they do this one of two ways. They, most universalists will either say, one, there is no hell, and so all of the Bible is a warning, but God's really going to let it slide in the end. Or there's this kind of newer version of universalism that says, yes, there is a hell, and everything the Bible says, read it as it says, but there's a time clock. There's a hell is only going to last so long, and then God's mercy is going to overcome his wrath, and then he's going to forgive them and take them to heaven. Both of these are very false views. They are very wrong, and they do not fit um, with the biblical account. But I, I, I bring this back up to you this morning an encouragement um, from others because they use this verse as one of their proof texts. Because it says here, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God doesn't even want to do this. And so either he's not, or he's going to do it and change his mind. And that's how their, their mindset goes, and, and in their teaching it goes that way. But hopefully you, as biblical scholars, know that's a poor reading of this verse. When we read God's Word, we read it in its context. We certainly don't take half verses and half truths and come up with whole views. A few things I want to bring to your attention as we think about this this morning, and this really is worth our time. When Peter wrote this, he, he wrote it specifically to several churches. He didn't write it to everyone, per se. Now, God's Word is for all who believe, but he was writing to churches. And so when he says all here, you watch your pronouns, watch how things go, he had a certain group of people in mind. Secondly, there's a sense in which we need to be very careful and I, I can't overstate that this this morning. We need to be very careful when we prescribe motive and intent to God. Because we're not God. 
We, we are not him. We don't have his mind. We don't have his, his uh, overview. We don't have his uh, ability to understand. And so we need to be very, very careful anytime we come to a passage like this before we come to that conclusion, well, this is what God must mean. Now, there is a difference. And I, I, I've wrestled with this all week on how best to explain this to you. Between what's called God's desired will and what is God's decretive will. God's desired will, what God is saying here is he would desire that no one suffer the consequences of hell. For he created all of mankind in his image after his likeness. He would desire that all of them be saved. However, his decretive will, what he declared, what he decreed, was that salvation would be only for the elect. And we see this all throughout Scripture. I don't really have the time to dig into passages, but um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul says something similar. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Now, God is not saying in this verse he really wishes he could do something about it, but is powerless to do so. I wish that I didn't always cry through baptisms, but I am powerless to do so. That, that is Aaron. I am not God. I can have a desire, but I can be unable to carry it out. That's not what God's saying here. He has this desire, but he's powerless to do it. Rather, if we really look at this verse and we take it in context of chapter 3, he's most likely referring here to the apostate, to the false teachers, who earlier in chapter 3 claimed to be Christians, professed faith, claimed to be a part of the church, and then left it, and is now teaching false teaching. And so that would make the point of this verse, all those that have left, would they come back? All those who have heard the truth, would they repent? And so it, it becomes a less of, may all everyone in the earth become faithful, and more so, narrowly for the sake of the church, would those who are now blaspheming it, these apostates are blaspheming the church, would they repent of their sin because they've heard the truth? They know that which is true. And recognizing that I'm giving you my, my best understanding according to the interpretation of God's Word and the study of over um, a dozen commentaries, I will leave you with this point, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. One commentator says it best. It is often best to live with the tension and mystery of a text such as this one, rather than to swallow it up in a philosophical system that pretends to understand God. God's patience and God's love is not an illusion, but neither do they remove his sovereignty. And we must be careful lest we attempt to do either. We reject false teaching of universalism from this passage and also affirm God has the sovereignty to carry out that which he chooses. And whether I've explained it to you well or not this morning, and I lean not, God knows what he's doing. God's word is true. God does not contradict himself and all who seek him by faith will be saved. If you hear nothing else out of what I said, and you can ignore that first part, catch that part. God knows what he is doing. God does not, nor will he contradict himself. And all who repent of their sin and turn to him will be saved. And that is his desire, and that will be carried out as part of his decreed will. Now, all of that was a bit of an aside, but I want to make sure we're not overlooking serious sections of Scripture, and I, I get excited in text, and sometimes I jump over things. 
Um, but I, I appreciate the chance, and I thank you for this ability to kind of look back as we take this as a whole, and it does apply to our passage today. How should we be living our life? We should be living our life seeking to understand the truth. We should be living our life seeking to know God's will and God's plan and God's desires. We should be careful, very, very careful, that we're rightly interpreting the Word of God and living it out as He tells us to live, not as we want to live, not as we think we should live, but according to Him. And that's really what Peter's telling us in these final four verses. He gives us four imperatives or four actions to take as you get ready, as you live that life, as you carry out the days that you have. He says, be diligent to be at peace. He says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. He says, wrestle with the hard truths. And finally, he says, grow in grace. These are our final challenges from the Apostle. Would you please follow along with me as we dive into each one? Be diligent to be at peace. We, again, taking this chapter as a whole, uh, the church has been encouraged, eagerly await the coming day of the Lord. This day will bring with it judgment for the wicked and salvation and restoration for the people of God. This is our hope. This is part of our hope as we struggle during present trials and difficulties. And there's a tension in this. There, there's a, a challenge for us. What should we do? How should we act? How do we live? <laughs> do we simply, all right, Jesus is coming back. He's going to make all things new. Judgment's coming. So let me go get my lawn chair. Let me pack a cooler of snacks, find a good hill, plop myself down and wait. Keeping an eye on the sky. Maybe we find ourselves going, or I just don't do anything. Uh, we can kind of take the monastic approach. Let's bunker down. Let's get our supplies. Let's get our needs. Let's learn to make our own um, uh, supplies and, and tools. And we'll just pray and read the Bible until, and wait for Jesus to come back. Or do we charge head first? Do we dive into the world? I'm going to change this world for Christ. I'm going to fix the wrongs. I'm going to correct the errors. I'm going to make what's bad right. Well, I cannot say for you in your particular situation which of these paths is correct. I can tell you that um, there's some dangers with all of them, especially the monastic movement. It didn't work. Read some history. Um, it wasn't very effective because uh, they seek to, sought to keep sin out, but they brought sin with them, um, as would we all. But I, I think the right approach, I think the right understanding is, is less the sit and wait and more the be busy until he comes. And in fact, I would say, um, make the case that this is uh, verified in this chapter. I would also point you to 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. Paul tells the church, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. We don't have time for it this morning. There's two things before the fall that God declares good, and that's marriage and work. Think about that. We, we want to be very careful that we get a mindset that says, I, I will not work, I'm not going to waste my time. But rather than that nothingness, rather than that you know, passive, I'm just going to sit and wait, Peter calls us to action. He tells us to do things. In fact, he says, be diligent. That's not just doing, that's doing well. That's doing with effort. That's giving forth 
um, of yourself. That's really trying. Consistency. He says, since you're waiting for these things, since you're waiting for Jesus to come back, since you're waiting for judgment to come, since you're waiting for the church to be vindicated, be diligent to be found by Him. We should be working when the Master comes. And what should we be working at? Well, two things. Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. And be diligent to be found by Him at peace. Let's take each of those. Without spot or blemish. 1 John 1.7 The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from sin. When you have a spot, when you have a blemish, yesterday we were eating lunch at a restaurant as a family and I grabbed what I thought was a napkin and it was not a napkin, it was a discard napkin which means it had the mustard packets in it and I used it to wipe my face and I painted myself neon yellow with the mustard in the process. That shirt had to come home, it had to be treated, it had to be washed so that that stain would be removed. You have to be cleansed. Things that are dirty have to be made clean, and there's a process for that. And so when Peter says be clean or be without spot or blemish, there is a process, and that process is being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I could have quoted the whole thing, but I, I take just a, just a piece of it for you this morning. Hymn 307. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If the Bible says make yourself clean, if the Bible says remove spot or blemish, if the Bible says work at this, what do we do? One, we cling to Christ. You can't get clean any other way. It will not work. Now, what's not being said here is you go and get yourself saved. What's not being said here is you work it out and God will take care of the rest. No, what's, what's being said here is we cling to Christ and then we begin the process of what's known as sanctification, of dying to our sin and living unto God. As we grow in Him, as we grow in our love and knowledge of who He is and what He has done, we find out a few things. You are far more sinful than you think you are right now. And if the Lord sees you ten more years and you grow in Him, you're going to look back and go, boy, it was a lot simpler when I was a lot less understanding of my own sin. And then if the Lord grants you ten more years, you'll say the same thing again. And until He returns, you, you, you realize it's not that you're more sinful, it's you're really bad now. You just understand it better. But by His grace, as He gives us a better understanding of our sin, He also, through His grace, enables us, enables us more and more to die to that sin, to say no to that temptation, to turn from that path, to turn from that wickedness. So we are taking part in the cleansing, not the salvific part of the cleansing. That is done once and for all by Jesus. But it's a lot like when it's raining out, you put on a raincoat because you don't want to get wet. We, and through sanctification, start to go, it's going to rain. I need to get out that raincoat. Or I'm going to be tempted in this way today. I'm going to prepare. Or this struggle may come. I'm going to be ready for it. I know how I didn't deal with it last time. I know what I need to know. God's Word says this. God's truth says this. And through whether it's accountability or prayer or Scripture, whatever it may be, you will know what's ahead. And so we are to be diligent about being clean. But we're also to be diligent about being at peace. I love 
Um, John Calvin, he describes what peace is from this verse. The world engages and engrosses the minds of others. We must cast our eyes upon the Lord. He, he defines peace as just that, casting your eyes upon the Lord. We must be a people who focuses on Him, not the world. For then and only then can we have true peace. Think of Peter on the boat. Stormy waters. Jesus comes walking up to him. He says, oh, Savior, would you call me? Would you, would you invite me to come? Well, come on, Jesus said. That's a paraphrase, but go read the gospel account. And he goes. And what happens? As long as he's focused on the Savior, he walks on water. As long as his eyes are fixed on Jesus, he does not drown. As long as his eyes are on the Master, he defies that which is logical, that which is rational, that which makes sense. But then he looked to the world. And he looked to the chaos and he looked and, and probably thought about the depth of the waters and the, the rain upon his head and, and all of the things in this world, the fact that he shouldn't be doing this right now. This shouldn't happen. And what happened? He begins to sink. And I don't want you to miss something about that parable. That, that's such a powerful story. Because what happens next? Jesus reaches out his hand and grabs him. That's how close he got. You're never out of the reach of your Savior. You're, you're never beyond his saving hand. Be at peace. The only way you can have peace today is by looking to the Savior. It doesn't matter what storm you are facing. It does not matter what trial is in your life. It doesn't matter what temptation is before you. The only way to be at peace through it is through our Savior. And so be at peace today, dear Christian. As we do this, we, we look at the, to the second point of our passage Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And this really is a summary point of um, several points Peter has made to this point. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. God is patient. God is patient for the sake of those to be saved. We've just talked about this. Peter is saying, wait. Wait for the return of Christ. Wait. Wait for those yet to profess faith. Wait for the little ones, like Windling, to be born into covenant families. God waits because it is an act of love for Him to do so. God waits because it is loving and caring and good that He is slow in His judgment. That is not a failure to act on God. That is an act of patience and an act of love. And, and Peter, I love what he does here. He, he kind of cross-references. It's like, if you don't believe me, well, how about that guy named Paul? He's told you the same thing. He's wrote it in a lot of places. And, and well, boy, do we not have time to cross-check all of those this morning. But I, I want to make a, a, a point. It, it's, it's a, it seems like a minor point, but it's actually very major. Peter's writing through the power of the Holy Spirit to these churches. He's writing on behalf of God, by God's grace, by God's power, part of the Bible, the canon, the Scriptures. And what does he do when he does that? He says, and by the way, read everything Paul said too. And then it's like, oh, well, if I combine all of Paul's writing and all of Peter's writing, I'm getting close to most of the New Testament, aren't I? 
Peter's actually verifying books of the New Testament. We've got a, a confirming of the New Testament scriptures here taking place. Because Peter is saying, as authoritative as I am, as you look to me, also look to my brother Paul and look to his teaching because he's taught the same thing. Which, if you're writing through the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, it should be the same. Again, God doesn't contradict himself. It's not like he's going to write one thing one place and another thing another. And so we must count the patience of the Lord as, a, or as salvation. We must understand that while we may wish judgment to come, we may wish for Christ's return, and I think it is good to do so, to, to pray about it and ask for its day to come quickly. At the same time, we need to see it for what it is. And we've talked about this before um, as we've looked at this chapter. Let's get out there and get excited about telling people about Jesus. Let's share the good news of the gospel. Let's share our faith. Let's be bold in our proclamation because by doing so, we're quickening the day of Jesus' return. Now, our, our, our third point this morning, to me, really is the heart of this one uh, because it, it, it speaks to honesty that I need to hear. And even in what we've talked about already, it, it really helps us out. Wrestle with the hard truths. I love, love, love that the Apostle Peter wrote this. We get this mindset, even in a narrow view, we look at these guys and we look at all they accomplished and we're like, wow, you are so awesome, I won't ever be able to accomplish that. Why did God choose someone, me, measly person like me, when he chose all these wonderful people? Well, Peter blasphemed the Lord. I mean, he, he did the exact same thing Judas did. He just came to repentance. You know, Paul murdered Christians. You know, we, could, we could go down the list. You can go to Hebrews 11, look at the Hall of Faith, and then cross-check each of those guys with their, their um, written accounts. And you realize that they're sinful men, too, and, and that have found the Savior. That should give you hope. Like, that gives me hope. I hope it gives you hope. And it also gives me hope that Peter writes these words, some of my favorite words he ever wrote. There are some things written in Paul that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Peter just wrote 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and then has the audacity to say, sometimes Paul's difficult to understand. I love that. I love that he included that. I say that in jest, but there's a, a very important point here that I don't want us to miss. There are things in the Bible that are difficult. We are addressing God's word and God's will for our lives, and sometimes that will be difficult. If you don't think so, come see me. I'd love to talk to you about Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. If you can help me with some of those passages, I'd appreciate it. There are passages that are hard to interpret and require us to dig really deep, and sometimes we simply have to conclude God is great, His will will be done, and it will all work out, and it's okay if we don't know. But that will not be the case for false teachers, and this is the warning Peter's making. False teachers will dive head in. They don't care if they're wrong. In fact, most of the time, that's what they're going for. They will twist Scripture to their own destruction. He calls them both ignorant and unstable. False teachers will use God's Word for their own particular gain. And I'll throw some, some theological words at you. This is what's called eisegesis. Eisegesis, which is reading an intent and purpose into the text 
versus what I pray we do on a weekly basis, which is called exegesis, or reading the intent and purpose from the text. I'll give you a great example of this. You see here, the Bible tells you to be at peace and not to stress about difficult things. Um, statistics show, and in talking to many of you, I know that for most of you, money or finances is a source of stress and a source of difficulty. And so I'm going to help you this morning according to this passage. I'll put a bucket in my office after the service, give all of your money and put it in that bucket, and then you won't have money so you won't have stress. And I'll take care of it. Just trust me. I'll take care of it for you. That's called eisegesis. And again, we, we can kind of chuckle at that, but I've heard that on the radio. I've, I've listened to preachers give that very message uh, just in a different way. That's having an agenda and reading it into what the passage says versus taking it for what it said in its genre, in its context, with its original audience, and asking what do we learn from it according to what it says. Be very, very careful. I, I cannot stress enough, beware the false teachers. We must be on guard. You, beloved, knowing this, take care that you're not carried away with error of lawless people. You're blessed with the Scriptures. You can read it, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can discern the truth in it. I've told you before, don't trust me blindly. Don't listen to what I say simply for the sake of listening. You don't have to get swept away by whatever teaching sounds good or attractive. Measure it against the rest of the Scriptures. Don't lose your footing. Don't become unstable. Rest upon the rock which is Christ and be secure. And all that being said, Peter wraps up this section with one last imperative. Grow in grace. Verse 18, grow in grace. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grace undeserved favor. The greatest act of grace is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The, the, the greatest act of, of mercy and of compassion is that we did not die immediately for our sin, but God was slow and patient. He was merciful to us. For some of us who were converted later in life, He did wait for you. And boy, aren't you glad He didn't come back before then. For those who are blessed to, to be baptized as covenant children, isn't that a grace? Isn't that a grace that he, he raised us up in the church, in faithful homes, in faithful families? I, I love baptism, and the reason I get so choked up is um, the family has made promises today, but you have too as a church. That's part of your job as a church, is to help raise these beautiful, wonderful children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you've promised before them and before God that you'll help them do it. So if it doesn't work out, it's your fault too. That's not how that works. But that's God's grace. God is so gracious to us. And don't stop seeking it. Don't stop seeking His grace, His mercy, His favor. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep pursuing Him. There are often difficult passages, as there are often difficult challenges in this life. And whatever season you find yourself in today, I pray that you look to the one that has already weathered the storm and cling to him. We are promised the day of Christ's return is coming soon. And my prayer for you is that when it comes, as Peter says here, you are found by him without spot, without blemish, and at peace. And the only way that will be true for your life 
is if you're trusting in Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins, resting in him by his work on the cross for you. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, it's such a special day. Every Lord Day is a special day. It's a day to praise you through song. It's a day to read your truths. It's a day to confess our sin and to hear of the forgiveness we have. It's a day of fellowship. It's a day of joyful giving. It's a day of singing and praise. It's a day in which we observe the sacraments. It's a day in which we get a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Lord, if there be people here today that do not know these truths, do not know this joy, would they come to you? Would your word bear over them as a weight, as a burden? For those of us who do rest in you and maybe are struggling in various ways today, would they find comfort and hope in you? Lord, may we all, when the day of your return comes, whether through our death or through Christ coming back, may we all be found without spot, blemish, and at peace. May we seek you each and every day. We thank you for all that you do, all that you are, and all that you promise. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.